welcome to the Little Brown Podcast. This is a podcast about uncomfortable pasts and precarious presence for Indigenous people. The Little Brown Podcast is about head takers, white burdens, and expensive G-strings. This is not the Igorot experience. This is our Igorot experience. So today we're going to do a deep dive into the term Igorot our indigenous history, and our colonial baggage that we carry until today. And we're taking cue from the first introduction of ourselves and how we came to understand the term Igorot. And we'll try to bring in as much historical and colonial reference to this particular term. As we move forward with other episodes, we're going to use the term Igorot just so as a catch-all term. But before we even try to use Igorot in different contexts, we would like to investigate that term further. And for me, I'd like to begin by referencing William Henry Scott, who studied this uh, particular term and how he has deconstructed this term for us today, for scholars and activists to use critically and not just use haphazardly. So Igorot, as it is popularly defined in the Philippines, is the collective term for all ethno-linguistic groups that inhabit the mountainous regions of the major island of Luzon, the Cordillera Central. But let's first talk about how Igorot... Um, by way of William Henry Scott, created this kind of tension or a dichotomy um, during Spanish occupation. So the existing dichotomies back then or existing identities from the colonial gaze back then was the Indio and the tribus salvajes. So for the Indios, these are the Christianized natives, basically the converts or those under Spanish pueblos or encomiendas. And then you have here another group called the tribus salvajes, any group that was not colonized, those that are in the peripheries, those who, are, who fled to the mountains, and this also includes those who are not yet converted, which are, or which includes the Igorots. But for William Henry Scott, the Igorot is not really something that's native to the Igorots themselves, that particular term. It's, it does not come from any language spoken in the Cordillera, but came from languages spoken by the lowlanders. And he references to Pardo de Tovera here, where he said that the prefix E with the word Golot just means from the mountains. E means from, Golot means mountains. So we are from the mountains. And this is how the lowlanders understood us because uh, we were engaging with the lowlanders even before Spanish occupation through barter relations. That term, coming down from the mountain, changed dramatically to how we have discussed that in the first introduction episode. The Igrot now carries meanings such as being a headhunter, having tales. This term has invariably created historical, economic, and political tensions, not just among the natives, but within the entire discourse surrounding the mononational identity of the Filipino. And to, of course, the imagined idea of a united Philippine nation. This developed into a highly political term uh, right into the American colonization. The term Igorot can now be understood as the little brown brother, the little brown man, the paternal or how the Americans have treated us like brothers and sisters. So this paternal relationship is something that um, we can, I guess, talk about right now. So I'd like to bring in Faye here. How does it still translate today? I think like, as we've said in the previous episode, how the little brown brother was this how it encapsulated this attitude of benevolent assimilation. Later on, like after the colonization period, and even right now, there's this 
complex relationship that we have towards the Americans and the American colonization. And I like to call it colonial nostalgia because it's more of like remembering the things that the American colonizers did, but not remembering the colonization. This is the kind of like attitude that is seen with Baguio, like Baguio as a city, how it was a hill station and how it's always like consistently glamorized how it was like the perfect city during the American colonial period. And it's very limiting. If you see it like that, it's almost like, wow, it was so nice when you were colonized by the Americans because we had like the country club or we had like horses or the lake or whatever. There was no traffic, you know, all Mm -hmm. of those things that really downplays like we were under, we were, we were colonized then. It's not right. It's it's rose-colored glasses, basically. And I think it's uh, also interesting to note here that the reason why this is uh, Baguio is projected like a fantasy and the best side of colonialism back then, the reason why the Americans were very interested in the Cordillera is not just the Igorot gold, but also to find a resort like Hill Station for their officials to take a break from the tropical heat. Okay, so I have a question with regards to that. So is there any truth in the history of Baguio being some sort of like a mental health destination, quote-unquote? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, when they successfully occupied Baguio, they didn't really establish a military outpost similar to how the Spanish established their pueblos. Yeah. But they've established these um, um, Gabaldon-style cottages that yeah. would house their officials and some military officers who were maybe war-weary from the ongoing Philippine-American war or who just would like to go to a colder place because Manila is still as tropical as, <laughs> as it was back then to establish it as a hill station, to, to establish it as a resort made a lot of indigenous peoples think that the Americans are not here to militarize us or not here to do anything that is bad. But of course, we know that they have done so many things on the side. During American occupation, they've established the first mining settlement, something that the Spaniards were not successful in maintaining. We can go back to American colonization and how it uh, ushered in mining companies until today. So one of these colonial mining establishments was the Benguet Corporation. It was first established by the Americans. But I think the term igorot as a political term, it's now something that a lot of scholars and activists are critical of because it tends to generalize or blanket all of these disparate and different experiences of indigeneity in the region. We have different languages. Some of these languages are unintelligible to each other. There's a vast difference among the Itneg, the Kankanay, the Ibaloy. So to have just one term to describe us is a little bit diminishing of these kinds of experiences of indigeneity. The reason why there's the term Igrot and the term Igrot persists is because after American colonization and the establishment of the Third Republic, a lot of uh, officials like Congressman Hora from the Mountain Province um, became critical of this term because it has so much discriminatory and uh, offensive uh, stereotypes attached to it. And this is not just the Igorot, this is also the Moro in the South. 
So he he forwarded a bill in Congress to address that term and to to say that that term shouldn't be used to describe the Cordillerans and the Mindanaoans. But the bill was squashed. Having discussed the the etymology of the term Igorot and how it is used now and how it is a little bit complicated when we blanket this term to describe all Cordillerans, this also needs to connect with the broader identity of indigenous peoples or who we are and what we or how we are described in the in certain institutions. We already have a very complicated term to identify us. How then can we fit that or engage with existing terminologies or existing descriptions of that broader identity called indigenous peoples. And I'd like to bring in Alan in this discussion and try to see how you as an Igorot in the UN figure in this discussion and how, what were your experiences as an Igorot working within the UN? Sure. Well, if Igorot is an uncomfortable blanket term, right, then Indigenous is even more so, because it's the blanket term that, that you then uh, mm-hmm. put everyone from the, across the world into, right? Um, but it's also the way that uh, a lot of the language we use now, where it comes from. So talking about free prior informed consent, that comes from the UN discourse stuff. And talking about self-determination of Indigenous peoples, that comes from the UN discussions. And... Uh, a lot of the terminology that sort of filters down to the ground actually came from the indigenous peoples that were there in these meeting rooms in Geneva and New York sort of hashing this stuff out. And in terms of the experience of going there, it's like that, like, because all of these, all of these indigenous people are like, you know, they're living, uh, living cultures now. So what it involves is the Igorots, they send their lawyers there, and the Native Americans, they send their lawyers there, and uh, the Aborigines from Australia, they send their lawyers there and their NGO workers and so on. So uh, in terms of the texture of it, yes, there's the feeling of uh, IP culture, and they do insert like uh, declarations of land and declarations of belief and, uh, and things like that. But it's also like a governmental process. So it's a little bit alienated around uh, from what's going on. Um, in terms of technical definition, basically that group, because it's all of the IPs from around the world, uh, couldn't fix on one definition for being indigenous. Like the general thing that they settled on was one, self-identification. Like uh, indigenous people will identify as indigenous and then the other indigenous will see themselves in them like that, right? And two, what the UN sort of semi-fixed on is an experience of colonization, uh, but uh, that has uncomfortable aspects as well, right? Because the model of colonization that is especially recognized was uh, that of the European settler powers during the period of colonization. And so it's sort of like clear cut, all of the people that they colonized, that they should have then indigenous people. But for other people, like the, I don't know, Ainu from Japan, which were not settled by a European colonial power, or peoples who have experienced neo neocolonialism now, 
it's not so clear cut. So that's why it was sort of not directly determined because it was too confining, too confining a term, I think. Right. It's nice that you brought in this common history of, uh, and common understanding that to, to, to identify things in general terms would have so much tensions to it. And mentioning that the term indigenous peoples, the UN itself, even the term Igorot is coming from this common history of colonization. I'd like to, 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 to unpack that further. How did colonization, colonialism, complicate or make these terms you know, have all of these baggage that we're trying to contend with today. I think Mayo would like to, to share certain, you know, points of uh, discussion regarding colonialism and how, how this connects to our discussion of that particular identity or these identities that we just fleshed out. Hi, yeah, Kervin, thank you so much for, for letting me kind of lead or facilitate um, this discussion around colonization, colonialism, and then hopefully we can move into what we really want to know, which is decolonization. Um, I actually talk about this with my class. Um, and to, to understand decolonization, and much like what you are all saying right now, um, we have to understand colonialism and colonization before we can understand decolonization, right? So. When I look up definitions, I, of course, like to kind of look at things side by side. Um, what does the academics think? Of course, Western Eurocentric lens, how would they define this? And then kind of um, compare and contrast or reflect on how indigenous scholars look at these terms. So for the academic definition of colonialism, which I'm pulling from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, uh, they define colonialism as an act, right? So it's a verb. Um, it's the practice of domination. It involves subjugation of one people to another. It's how we usually, how what I noticed too, a lot of Western scholars kind of use this term is the transferring of populations from one territory to a new territory, and then um, that population um, as arrivals to that new territory become the permanent settlers in that quote-unquote new land, while still maintaining political allegiance to their country of origin. So if you think about um, yeah, the Philippines, you know, when, when the Spanish came and, and colonized um, us, 1521, if I'm not mistaken, um, they took us as our land and our resources and our people as um, basically the property of, the, of King Philip II in Spain. Um, so although they moved to our lands, they still maintain their political allegiance to Spain. Um, and with how we understand the term itself, it actually comes from a Latin word, um, colonist, which means farmer. And when I was looking at this up, I was like, wow, that's really interesting to think that the, the root word of colonialism, colonist, means farmer. That really got me to think like, okay, farmer, well, my people were farmers. Like I come from a matriarchal farming indigenous community, the Ifugao, and how warped it was, you know, this idea of 
you can own the land. You, you, you are transferring yourself so that you can control the land. You were not originally from the land. You came to that land to own it, to cultivate it, to reap its resources. And, and I thought that was just like such an interesting way to view the relationship of colonialism as an act when you think of it as a relationship maybe to like a farmer to their land. Um, yeah, does anyone like want to like give some input regarding that kind of dichotomy or relationship? Well, the only other time I've heard the word colonize as something that's regards to farming is actually from a movie, The Martian, with, uh, um, I forgot the actor, actor's name, but Matt Damon, and he said that you colonize Mars. You can say you can claim you colonize the planet once you start making food. So he claimed to colonize Mars once he started making a potato. So <laughs> I can see how that definition of the farming colonists, Latin, Latinized. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, that's really what the relationship of the colonizer was to its colony. Um, what it can get from, from it, it's always like extractive, is, is what I notice. Or else like, and it got me to think like, why did they want to come and take our stuff? Like, why couldn't they just go and live off their stuff? Why they was don't there... have potatoes. They don't have anything, right? <laughs> they I mean, have... they wanted to go to our places, to our place for spice. Yeah. And they got lost. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they got lost. Yeah. Right? It's interesting to note that the Spanish occupation of the Philippines came by accident. They were really right? going to Java, not really in the Philippines. Um, I want to also move us into the forms of colonialism. So I took these definitions from Native scholars uh, or POC scholars, um, Tuck and Yang, from their work called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Um, from decolonization, indigeneity, education, and society. So basically, they explain the forms of colonialism in three ways. The first is external colonialism, also known as exogenous or exploitation colonialism. So this is kind of what we were talking about, the extraction of wealth from the colony and to bring it to the, the empire, to where they're from. So it's... Um, yeah, like exactly what you're all talking about. The spice trade, chattel slavery, and basically all extractive industries that are still going on to this day. If you think about mining, if you think about fracking, you know, those types of things. The second form of colonialism is internal colonialism. So this is not like me personal, like I am being colonized. It's more of like the inherent structures that are set up by the colonizers in its colony. So. If you think about particularized modes of control, um, how they set up prison systems or the criminal system, how they set up um, certain housing. Like if you think about America with its redlining or just basically apartheid or segregation, um, schools and what types of schools are available to what communities or forced to be there like for example you have the indian boarding schools here in america and then the missionaries 
that went to the Cordilleras instead of their Christian schools. Um, those are all forms of internal colonialism. And even when you think about the Spanish and Americans, even though they quote unquote physically might have left, the institutions that they still kept in place are still in our countries. Like, dude, just like our form of government itself, you know, is was established, the Commonwealth government in the Philippines is established by the Americans to mirror what the Americans had. And then the last one, which I think is the most important one, honestly, just because that's, I'm also based here in um, Turtle Island, or what is now commonly known as the North American continent, um, settler colonialism. And it operates on both um, the internal and external colonial modes simultaneously, because there's no spatial separation between the metropole and the colony. Basically, um, I like to explain this as um, the settlers never left and there is still a big mess. Whereas if you compare it to external colonialism, which is what they t uh, use to like describe the Philippines or India, yes, the settlers left and they, le uh, they left the big mess, but with settler colonialism, like in the US, Canada, and Australia, the settlers never left. So that's why there's still a big mess. Does anyone want to harp in on that? Is there a certain blurring of external and settler colonialism, especially the condition of the Philippines, where the Americans constantly come back or interfere with our internal political mess? Definitely. <laughs> and I create mean, more mess. <laughs> these things are not um, mutually exclusive. Is when like all of these are all the forms of colonialism, all the ways colonialism is enacted. So it doesn't exist, and it really just depends on what you're pertaining to. So if you're talking about, for example, that yeah, let's talk about like the school systems and how they were set up um, in the Cordillera by the American missionaries. Like while that was going on. Settler colonialism was also happening then too, right? When you all were talking about Baguio being, you know, the, the hill station for the American soldiers mm -hmm. and stuff. Like, one would it couldn't exist without, or they were both kind of mutually feeding into each other to, yeah. to do the act of colonialism. It's like the more of these that you do, the more successful you are at colonizing. Mm -mm. That's how I see it, at least. Yeah. Maybe also, you know, like to understand the Cordillera or the rest of the Philippines as still being a colony in, you know, to a certain extent. I was I just thinking about that today. You know, if you yeah. think about even like, okay, the way, like the Philippine economy is basically staying afloat due to the remittances of OFWs, right? Yeah. So if you think about that, we're still, for me, we're still colonized because our economic base is based off of labor that has to come from another country. Like, mm -hmm. our, our, it's still our labor, it's still Filipinos, but the fact that they have to work in another country mm -hmm. just so we, they can keep our, help keep our Philippine economy afloat still means that we're being colonized. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, 
we don't have our full independence because we're dependent on the economy of what overseas Filipino workers are bringing back to our country. Um, there are many examples of this interdependence in remittance economy, especially with the Philippines and other nations. But I like to bring in Hawaii as an example of uh, how a lot of Filipinos, especially when the U.S. relaxed their borders to bring in more Filipino workers. What makes the Filipino identity there in Hawaii? Hawaii being a settler colony of the United States. So if you look at the timeline of Filipino history and Hawaiian history with regards to our experiences with the U.S., you'll find that there's an intertwining of some sort, kind of like what Mayo said about the forms of colonization feeding into one another. Things that were happening in Hawaii affected things that happened between the Philippines and the U.S. and vice versa. So for example, the families of American missionaries in Hawaii became sugarcane plantation owners. They wanted complete control of the island so that they could make as much money as they could. And this was a huge driving force behind the annexation of Hawaii in 1898. And if that year sounds familiar to you, it's because it was also the same year the U.S. declared war on Spain. Mm. The American military was sent to the Philippines to supposedly help us out, right? Mm-hmm. And so when Spain lost the war, they handed the Philippines along with Guam, Puerto Rico, and Cuba over to the U.S. And boom, the Philippine-American War followed. And so the taking of the Philippines and the taking of Hawaii were strategic moves by the United States to dominate the Pacific. Um, but going back to the sugarcane plantations in Hawaii, in 1906, the first Filipino contract laborers, the Sahadas, were brought over, were brought over here. Recruiters specifically targeted agriculture communities and went to the provinces, which is why we have so many Ilocanos and Visayans here. When they went to Ilocanos and Visayans, what what were they looking for specifically? To like recruit them, right? Like mm-hmm. so yeah, they they wanted people who were used to working in um, similar conditions, meaning like agriculture. They wanted people who were experienced in that. But I also learned from Dr. Rod, shout out to Dr. Rod, that when Filipinos were being recruited, some of them had to pass a palm test. They had to show the palms of their hands to the recruiter who would check for calluses to prove that you really were used to working in the land. And they thought that if you had smooth hands, it probably meant that you were educated. And if you were educated, you would probably try to organize for better working conditions. It didn't work, though, because Filipinos went on strikes regardless. Mm. Yeah. But um, so my family's migration story is a result of the plantation industry. My dad's aunt married a plantation worker, and that opened up a pathway for the rest of her family to eventually join her. So now in 2020, we Filipinos make up a huge portion of the population here. We're the fastest growing ethnic minority. And although the plantations have been shut down, there's talk about how hotels are the new plantations of Hawaii. The tourism, service, and labor industries are heavily staffed by Filipinos, Micronesians, and of course, Native Hawaiians. But Hawaii didn't get statehood until the 50s, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Because then you're officially the 50th state, even though it happened illegally. It's so interesting because uh, America still has other territories as well. America, Samoa, Puerto Rico among them. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. It just goes to show how, you know, wide the 
the extent of colonial control exercised by the United States and how even former colonies and current colonies now turned states of the colonizer have this kind of connection. And we can go back to, or at least go back to the task at hand. How do we then come to understand the Igorot, the indigenous person, the indigenous peoples, in connection to the diaspora, in connection to the homeland? Because currently in the Philippines, and I know, of course, in the diaspora as well, there are big, uh, you know, there, there are discourses and debates happening around um, being Filipino, what it means to be Filipino. And right now in the Philippines, the certain, certain institutions keep forwarding this mononational identity of being a Filipino. If you speak Filipino, you know all of the symbols to be, or you know all of the symbols of what a Filipino is, including the national bird, the national leaf, the national house, we already have this very complicated term to describe us as indigenous peoples. And now as a member or as a citizen of a country that uh, should acknowledge all of the different identities, the term Filipino is now um, also as complicated. So I don't know where I am standing right now. Sometimes I refer to myself as an Igorot and not a Filipino. But sometimes when I apply for grants, I say I'm Filipino because there's no... Um, there's no drop-down menu for indigeneity there. So I guess Mayo can continue talking about this task, decolonization, or at least colonization coming into decolonization. Yeah, so the example you just gave of like these terms that we use to identify us one, didn't even come from us. Two, was used as a way for usually our colonizers or even now just like other institutions or maybe other um, international folks to have a way to kind of collectively generalize a specific group of people. Um, for me, it really unpacks and exposes um, colonization, you know, the practice, the legacy of colonization. So earlier I said how colonialism is the act, it's the verb, right? Colonization is kind of the noun. It's, it's how that act continued on, meaning the legacy, right? The legacy to maintain subjugation and exploitation. And, um, and it's both the informal and formal ways to maintain those subjugation and exploitation, specifically of indigenous peoples, their lands and their resources. And it, you know, it's, it, it's so pervasive in that it encompasses how we even name ourselves. Um, if you're giving your power or you're allowing other people to name you, to tell you who you are, that's literally the goal of colonization is to maintain social, political, and economic power. If you allow people to basically describe who you are for you, you've mm -hmm. basically given up your agency. You've basically given up your sovereignty. You've basically given up your right to self-determination, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's examples here like in... Uh, for natives here in, in America, um, a lot of federally recognized tribes um, 
have to have a tribal ID card. And I don't know if y'all have heard of this yet. So basically, Indigenous card is real. It's real. It's institutionalized. It's a law. So it first started. Basically, it was like their way to keep census, right, of the Native Americans um, that they colonized. <laughs> Um, through settler colonialism. And it was a way to keep track so that they didn't have to honor the treaties eventually. So the, the hope of the colonizers was that, you know, by exploiting and oppressing Native Americans, by, you know, like forcing them out of their ancestral lands, by spreading disease, by forcing them into boarding schools, et cetera, et cetera, that the race, the red race would eventually mm -hmm. die out. And that having these tribal ID cards that were institutionalized through the blood quantum laws, mm -hmm. blood quantum meaning you had to have at least a fourth of your blood be native in order to be considered a native person wow. in America. Yep, And you had to prove your indigeneity through your lineage. And um, now tribes still, a lot, of, a lot of tribes still use this, um, but they've kind of like uh, tweaked the laws so that it doesn't necessarily have to be like one-fourth pure Diné or Navajo. You could be like, as long as you're one-fourth native something, for example. So it's like the tribal councils um, uh, kind of formulate what, is the requirement to be able mm -hmm. to be an enrolled tribal member in the philippines and i was you know i was talking about this with natives here i'm like whoa this will, could never fly in the philippines um <laughs> and i mean like for y'all what do you think like if we were to have a way to be censused you know kept oh. a record of from the government of who is igor like right. do you do you feel like you know, that would be something that would be possible or even helpful for us. Um, I remember how uh, Charlie and I talked about census before this podcast. I was sharing to Charlie how my last name is actually, or actually came out of, oh. uh, you know, it just created, was invented by my great-grandfather. Because during that time, um, in order to, to track population growth in the Philippines, they have to have, you know, they, they have to have a better census system. And what they did in the Cordillera, which is, um, which I think is uh, not just in Benguet, but also in certain areas of the Cordillera, we practice, before colonization, we practice this um, patrilineal naming. So not really the last name of your father is what you get, but the first name of your father is the one that you use as your quote-unquote last name. So, for example, Makliing Dulag, it's Makliing the son of Dulag. And in my case, my great-grandfather didn't have a last name to share by virtue of the description of the census that it has to follow this, you know, it has to follow a lineage. So my grandfather thought of a last name um, impromptu. And Charlie had the same experience. I think Charlie can share this too. Yes. Um, the legend is that from my great-grandfather's side is he wanted to get birth certificates of sorts for his children. And he went to uh, the city hall and he said, I want to register my kids. And the person there was like, okay, well, we need a last name. And he was like, I don't have a last name. 
And he's like, well, you need a last name. So my grandfather stood around and was like, okay, I need to think of a last name. He looked at the list of people that are in the office on the, I don't know if you see this in the city hall, like all of the people that are employed there. And he saw a last name that he liked. He said, oh, Yanis, that one, that's my last name. That's how we got our last name. <laughs> so I don't even know, I don't even know how you could begin to have yeah. a census and trace your name through name. Right. That's why it's so difficult to do genealogy studies in the Cordillera. Um, I guess we, we go back to that critical question. Do we need to have an indigenous identity card just to keep track of indigenous peoples? Uh, minus all of these um, um, weight of colonial power. Just an identity card. Would that be something that we should be using now? I want to say two things about like what we've just talked about. One is like how census was a tactic for colonization and keeping track of populations. Um, so this was also used by the Spanish, right? The establishment of pueblos or like the church being like the center of the town and then census as like they wanted to keep track of everyone that was baptized and became Catholic so that they could keep track of the population of their like colonized area. And how they did this was when they did censuses. Everyone who wasn't baptized or who wasn't like a Catholic, they named, um, they put a cross in the name. So that means that, oh, you're just, you're going to be part of this, of this pueblo now. And that essentially translated to, of the cross, like De La Cruz. That's why De La Cruz is such a, prominent last name in the Philippines because these were all of like the native people that were just like in um that were just included in that town so that they could be counted um with the colonized population the next thing is like the identity card of indigenous people and this is essentializing it's basically like can we really measure an indigenous person by their blood quantum or like how indigenous they are. Like, is there really such a thing as a full-blooded Igorot? And I know that this is a controversial thing to say because there are all of those, like, you remember all those t-shirts and all of those placards? Igorot. Yeah, or like FBI, like full-blooded Igorot. And I feel like it's like, I don't think that exists, though. Like, I don't think... <laughs> I mean, who is Igorot? And what is Igorot? And are you... Like, saying you're Igorot is, you know, the general term for the mountain people, right? Like, for people from mm -hmm. the mountains. And then... But that's also, like, there are different ethno-linguistic communities. So no one is really ever, like, pure of a general thing. I hope we get to talk about this too when we talk about cultural appropriation because I feel like there, there are people that will listen to this uh, podcast and think about, so if there's no census, can I just call myself Igor if I wear this freaking headdress? And <laughs> we're going to talk about that at some point. That's different, okay? <laughs> and I like how you use that term, essentializing. I, uh, I, I, yeah. I the first time I've ever heard of it, and I think that is something that we can. Mm -mm. I, it's pride, okay, mm -hmm. and I think that's the discussion around a trans a trans exclusionary radical feminists. Yeah, and trans exclusive is they essentialize a woman basically by her parts. Mm -hmm. 
So what is decolonization and how is this different from colonization? So to refer back to earlier, the main goal of colonization is basically for social, political, and economic power of, of the colonial power, right, of that empire that has subjugated, exploited um, another people's another land. Um, decolonization, um, and I'm taking this from the definitions proposed by Wilson and Yellowbird from um, their handbook called For Indigenous Eyes Only, a decolonization handbook. Um, and how they define it is decolonization is the intelligent, calculated, and active resistance to the forces of colonialism. Um, it's basically engaged for the ultimate purpose of overturning the colonial structure and realizing indigenous liberation. So in a lot of indigenous spaces, especially in the international um, like collective that Alan was referring to earlier, you hear that the goal of a lot of indigenous communities to assert their rights is for sovereignty and self-determination. So that very much mirrors what the goals of decolonization are. In my personal experience though, when I ask natives here in America who have been using the, this term a lot for me, a lot longer than, than us Filipinos, um, and of course, all the scholarship around decolonization, it's very simple for them. They want their land back. <laughs> they want their ancestral lands back. They want to live on their ancestral lands. And they want to attain collective healing from the traumas of colonialism. And that collective healing would lead to the liberation of their people. So like liberation, freedom, being the exact opposite of subjugation, exploitation, and oppression. So for like my throwout question to y'all, what does decolonization look like for us as Igorots, whether in the diaspora or in the homeland? I think for me, what decolonization means now me coming from certain social movements of indigenous peoples in the Cordillera, in order to really have a critical subversion of the, all of these things that colonialism did to us, is to have an organization that can politicize and organize the community to actively form, us, form some kind of ideological retaliation in whatever form that could take. Because in order for us to achieve self-determination, in order for us to get our lands back, there's a certain force that has to happen. And that force, I feel, is part of decolonization. One has to organize us or the communities to take action. Key to this is organizing work. Um, I, don't, I think I disagree a bit there because for me, my definition of an indigenous society is one that, you know, it is an organized society. It has systems of governance that might have been immensely eroded, but which can be salvaged and strengthened. Like self-governance self according to indigenous governance is what, for me, decolonization is. And it's sort of not, wouldn't then involve any kind of vanguardist sort of organizing of or ideologicalizing of it's it's more a sense of 
uh, rescuing or salvaging or seeing what structures of uh, governance and livelihood and uh, social organization are already existing within the various communities. Mm -hmm. So, because at the heart of it, like I said before that the UN definition, right, is those people that were colonized because there are people across the world who have been included into states, right, that actually already had self-organizing societies. They were polities, they had government, they had, you know, they had all of the aspects of a society. And so what is indigenous is partially just the recognition of these polities that pre-existed the state. And if you're talking about the Philippines, then obviously like the nation state, the Philippine nation state is a colonial, invented from the colonial, like from colonialism, right? Definitely. And so therefore decolonization is sort of a recognition and sort of a revival or a revivance of these systems of governance that already existed. They're a continuation, a, a continuum of existence. Alan, you bring up a really good point. I remember my brother, whenever we would have these types of conversations about surrounding decolonization, the first thing he would always bring up was like, well, look at the name Filipino in itself. What does that mean? How did we get that name? Right, because Igorots and indigenous peoples of the Philippines are put under that umbrella of Filipino. But the root word Filipino meant subjects of King Philip. So is that really how we want to identify? And that's all, that was always like our starting point of our conversations. That's just what it reminded me of. I think that self-determination and upholding our sovereignty is so crucial, so, so crucial to understanding um, what decolonization is as a collective, like, pursuit. Because I could say, like, I'm decolonizing my diet, and that could be an individual journey that I pursue, right? But if we're going to be talking about decolonizing the Igorot, which is already an umbrella term, pan-ethnic identity, um, it gets to be a little bit more difficult, right? Because if we decolonize by still also using a method of subjugation that generalized our identity, that just still sounds like colonialism to me, you know? So that's why for me, like, the, the, the key thing has always been how do we collectively self-determine our identity and uphold the sovereignty of what that collective identity means for us. So for me, it's, it's still going back to the Ely. Like for me, the Ely still, that, that concept around the Ely is, is um, a decolonial and indigenous way of how we've come to understand who we are and where we come from and how we determine that as a community. That itself is already decolonized. For me, I guess being Igorot right now is uh, taking part in conversations like this, getting to know ourselves through other people, through other lenses and other experiences. And this for me, uh, moderating this uh, discussion just makes me think that there are so many things that I don't know about myself that can only come from other people exploring other things about themselves outside of my context. I feel that 100%.
That's exactly that's exactly also how I feel. Like I can only experience being an ego through others, yeah. through you yeah. guys. You yeah. know, I think there's also like there's no denying, even like despite how complicated the word ego is and its history and how it's been used against us and how we've used it. The way that I want to see it is that I want to see it as a source of pride, and I want to. Mm-hmm. define it on my own too and this is a way that we can do that I mean it's what we're trying to do now I think bottom line the term igorot is a term of empowerment and that's what we carry when we use the term moving forward mm-hmm. and to subvert it is to find power within that term so I'd like to thank everyone for their time today and I'm very excited for the next topics that we're going to talk about so that's the show Thank you for joining us today. More information on this episode can be found on our website, thelittlebrownpodcast.com. Follow us on our socials at The Little Brown Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at TLBpodcast underscore on Twitter. Join us again next week as we talk about the Little Brown movement. This is not the Igorot experience. This is our Igorot experience.